welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Very nice. Welcome, uh, welcome everyone, and thank you for uh, to our team there for putting that special tribute together. Uh, the only thing we're missing there is planes flying overhead. There's probably one up there somewhere. I think we should pray just uh, just for our nation, Father. As uh, as we ask you to bless uh, our country and. Uh, as we seek uh, this place to be an honor to you, Lord, we know it is through the preaching of the gospel that hearts are changed and people are renewed and brought into relationship and love uh, with you, Lord. And so we do know a true change isn't going to come through a bill, uh, nor through lobbyists, but through the power of the gospel boldly preached. And we pray that you would raise up churches to do that in this day, and that you would be glorified uh, through the news of your Son, Father. Bless this day as we open your Word and seek to be guided by it, and may your Spirit help us to understand and perceive and to grow into the likeness of the image of Christ. In His name we pray, Amen. All right, you you can turn your Bibles again to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. There we are going to find that the, the temperatures in Jerusalem are rising. And if my proposition from last Sunday is correct, the Jews, uh, the Jews have become increasingly offended as to how that church 300 miles north in Antioch has has begun fraternizing with uncircumcised Gentiles. The news is out. Uh, Now add to this the approach of Passover, uh, which must certainly become an annual point of contention in Jerusalem. Uh, For we can only assume that for years now, The apostles have been preaching with urgency the need to stop offering lambs at Passover because the Lamb of God has already taken away the sin of the world. He is Christ, and there remains no other blood sacrifice for sins. Just as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 points out, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, referring to Christ, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished, Christ said on the cross. Uh, So the apostles and and the fairly small remnant of Christians who are still in Jerusalem, uh, they're, they're not joining the traditional 
Jewish observance of Passover. Instead, we can only assume they are to some degree, to some level, protesting the Passover, a compulsory feast commanded in the law of Moses. Let me explain. Passover commemorated how during the days that Israel was captive in Egypt, the destroyer or the angel of death had passed over the homes marked by the blood of a sacrificed lamb that was painted on that family's doorposts. And in Israel, Passover was immediately followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread uh, so that this entire Passover celebration, uh, inclusive of the feast of Passover, uh, or of unleavened bread, excuse me, Passover lasted a total of, of eight days. Passover was given. It was given by God in the law to teach Israel to understand that their only escape from death is being covered by the blood of a lamb, and Passover served as a shadow of what is to come, but the substance is in Christ, according to Colossians chapter 2. And as the final lamb of God, the, the perfect sinless human sacrifice, Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins at Passover, uh, but then again rose from the day uh, from the dead on the third day, uh, which is often referred to in our culture as Easter. At the cross, our sin debt was paid while the Son of God died as the final Paschal Lamb or final Passover Lamb. Now years have passed. And the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, like Peter and James and the other apostles, they are protesting the slaughter of those, you know, those cute little innocent and woolly creatures. Or at least, at a minimum, they are challenging Israel's understanding of the Passover. Um, I doubt that the apostles stood at the temple trying to prevent the Jewish families uh, from offering their families lamb, uh, but they are most assuredly proclaiming to Israel that their national holiday, their national holy day uh, of Passover, it all points to Jesus as being now the only lamb of God of sacrifice which Yahweh the God of Israel accepts. Your sin, my sin, people's sin, has offended a perfectly holy and righteous God. Uh, It is only Christ's blood, only Christ's blood at the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's only His blood that can turn away the destroyer. To turn away death, to to turn away the angel of death from your doorway. And I don't know precisely how this scene went down on this day, uh, but we do need to perceive there was an intensity of conflict that would have escalated between the Jews and the church every year about this time. 
And the tempers in Jerusalem, they are flaring when the dam finally breaks, as we will see reading now from Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now about the time Herod the king, about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to, the, to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison. But praying for him was... Prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then Peter left and went to another place. So James had been murdered, and the Lord's brother James is the James at the end that we're talking about, a different James, uh, that Peter said to report these things to. And you can see that, that all of this happened about the same time as Agabus had prophesied in Antioch concerning a famine that was going to, uh, to strike Judea. It doesn't mean that it all happened at the exact same time, uh, but 
about the same time or around that season, around that same time, all these events were happening. You know, persecution is, is rising. Famine is looming. And now the Apostle James is dead. It was once again becoming a difficult time to be a Christian in Jerusalem. And as I stated, you know, persecution probably escalated at this time because Passover was approaching, and James and Peter are proclaiming to the people of Israel that they should no longer just be playing along with this, with this old slaughtering of the lambs thing. Just as Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. But then Israel, Israel also knew that Moses said to them, this is in Numbers chapter 9, 13, Moses said, the man who neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin, writes Moses. So Moses said, but you can't disregard Passover. And perhaps annoyed by the social conflict that was being caused by the Christians during a holy week, uh, Herod literally had James's head cut off. And Herod hears now the Jews applaud. The Jews like it. Israel knew that you know, execution by the sword was the appropriate prescribed punishment under the law, Deuteronomy chapter 13, for anyone leading Israel astray to, to, to different gods. So in, so in defiance of Christ, the Jews are now, now making a bold statement to any, anyone who would dare to disobey the Passover. What is ironic what is ironic is the defendants, the Christians, those in the defense, men and women accused of failing to observe the Passover, are the only ones actually keeping the Passover through Christ, the true Lamb. And later, this same Peter will write the church in saying, 1 Peter 1.19, You were redeemed with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Meanwhile, the Jews, the, the ethnic Jews in Jerusalem, those applauding James's execution think, Oh, we're serving God. And coincidentally, the final time that Jesus himself sat and ate the Passover meal along with his disciples, it was Passover on the night in which he was betrayed. It was at that time when he initiated the new covenant through the bread and the cup. And it was then Jesus warned his disciples in John chapter 16, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think 
that he is offering service to God. Jesus says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So in perfect fulfillment of Christ's prophecy made at Passover, James becomes the first apostle to be martyred at Passover. You know, is there any indication here in any way that James's execution was deserved? You know, all indications of James are that that he was martyred because he was remaining loyal and true to Christ. Um, yeah, so much for the prosperity gospel. The apostles begin dying for Christ. Well, who's going to be next? Who gets it next? In verse 3, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so those seven days following Passover. Verse 4, when Herod had seized him, he put Peter in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring Peter out before the people. So Peter is clearly next on the chopping block. But minding his table manners and recognizing there was, a, there was a feast going on, Herod waits to execute Peter until after the celebration. Uh, this is a vital observation. Verse 1 assures that Herod had laid hands on and mistreated other Christians. Why the fixation on James and Peter? Why arrest them? Why execute them? It's because they serve as the vocal opposition. Peter and James were the leaders. They were reminding Jerusalem and the local Jews and the local church, all ethnic Jews, you know, not to participate in vain sacrifices that have been eclipsed through the new covenant in Christ and are now obsolete. They're the ones out, the apostles are the ones out there. And King Herod targets the leaders. You know, admittedly, you know, Stephen got swept into a controversy early on, an argument, got got swept away by an angry mob in chapter 6. But among persecuted churches throughout the world, who usually gets arrested and goes to prison first? It's the leaders. It's it's most often the local church leaders, the, the pastors and the elders of the church. During World War II, it was Richard Wormbrand, who was a pastor, who was imprisoned in communist Romania and then spent 14 years being tortured for Christ. You can read about it. He survived. He wrote a book. It's titled Tortured for Christ. Wormbrand also later founded the ministry that we know of today as the Voice of the Martyrs. Before Wormbrand, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
again a pastor, who was arrested in Nazi Germany for vocally opposing Hitler and the Holocaust. He was taken prisoner for two years before being executed by hanging. And whether kings or or magistrates or courts, who do state authorities target first? Usually Christian leaders. In answering this, uh, this week I was able to watch a movie that recently came out. It's titled The Essential Church. It was made as a documentary uh, about the forced shutdown of churches in liberal jurisdictions, including California and and Canada, following the outbreak of COVID-19. And even after governments turned a blind eye to mass protests, people gathering together tightly to protest, even after governments turned their back on those, even after they allowed casinos to reopen, authorities continued to keep the churches shut down indefinitely. This is recent history. Or at least they tried to keep them shut down. And the elders at Grace Community Church in California, including Pastor John MacArthur with his elders, they were threatened with massive fines and imprisonment as they were one of the churches, I don't want to suggest they're the only one, but they're, they have a big profile, they were one of the churches who obeyed God and defied man and who led the charge in California for churches to courageously open again. Folks, the threats and the consequences are very real. Very real. Pastors in Alberta, Canada, were arrested and put in prison. It's real. For opening up church when the government is looking the other way on other gatherings. Now, clearly, prosecution and persecution by government, you know, it doesn't stop when Herod dies here in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. It isn't a lost and archaic phenomenon. And the essential church chronicles how, how abuse of churches by, by civil leaders, by civil authorities, it's continued over the centuries in places that, that seem kind, like Scotland. You know a lot of people died standing for the gospel in Scotland by defying the king. One of the narrators in the document, documentary, his name is Pastor Ian Hamilton, uh, he stated this, quote, Government has always done this throughout history. You aim at the leading preachers. If you can get them to either conform or to crush them in spirit, then the people will lose heart. Of course, no, none or nobody suggests that it's only leaders. No one would suggest that government intimidation and persecution is exclusively on the leaders, but it almost always includes leaders. 
usually begins and the threats targeting uh, the pastors and the elders of the church are usually at the forefront uh, of accusations and arrests. So it would never happen here. Never happen. Folks, we're a free state. We're a red state. Free land here in Florida. Do you recall back in 2018 that Florida was 0.4% of the vote from electing a governor, much like Gavin Newsom of California, who would have done the exact same thing to this church right here? Don't kid yourselves. And they do so because governments know that if you can get leaders like you know the apostles Peter and James or Martin Luther, Richard Wormbrand, John MacArthur, if you can get them to compromise, if you can get them to cave in on their faith, if you can get them to recant their testimony, uh, you can very often subdue or scatter or demoralize the rest. Folks, it may be impossible for us to to fully assess, to, to quantify, to evaluate how the perseverance of the saints through the ages and the survival of faithful Bible-believing Christian churches, congregations who, like the pilgrims, miraculously survived assaults throughout history. And like Grace Community Church, they were not led by Christian leaders who compromised their faith or caved in to threats and political pressure. You'll notice it's not the names of men and women who capitulated and abandoned Christianity that our 2,000 years of church history celebrates. And it is due to God's providence on the pages of Scripture uh, that our faith is framed, pictured in role models such as Shedrach, Meshach, Abednego, David, Daniel, Rahab, Peter, and James, and John. Men of whom Scripture says, God approves. Women who stood faithfully through the ages for the gospel when they were told to abandon it. They defied the decrees of kings in order to remain faithful. Daniel, all you got to do is just not pray for a month. What did Daniel do? James and Peter, they were forced to defy Herod. And though they were equally faithful apostles, equally faithful in accord with divine providence, it was God who decided, you know, faithful Stephen and faithful James died. Meanwhile, faithful Peter and faithful John would live to die another day. It isn't that 
Peter was more pleasing and, and faithful to God than James. It's simply God's sovereign choice. Folks, God did not lose control over James. James didn't have to sit there when the blade came down and wonder, what have I done wrong? In accord with divine providence, Stephen, Stephen, the faithful James would die. God didn't lose control over James. You know, when standing before the fiery furnace, because they would not worship a golden image that was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told him, quote, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the firing from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The overarching lesson behind this execution of James and God's liberation of Peter It's this, our persecution by governing authority, it remains under God's providence. And we do not know whether he is going to deliver us to safety or whether he is going to deliver us to heaven. But we will be delivered. And whether we are imprisoned or not, Christian congregations have to learn and be confident that being imprisoned, it doesn't mean that God's displeased. That alone does not indicate that God is displeased. Being beheaded does not mean that James failed. We do know the end result when the king brandishes the sword And we only know that each of us must remain faithful until the very end. That's the overarching picture of this passage. James or Peter. In God's providence, God chooses. Can you imagine how our theology would suffer if James... And everyone else in Scripture always prospered and always lived. Consider how detrimental that would be to our prayers. You know, we we think, well, it's the bad guy always dies. And if the good guy always lives, all the church would have to do is pray for escape. That's all you got to do. And it is true that In verse 6, the church was fervently praying for Peter, but they were not praying for his escape. And when it came down to this very last night, day 8 of the festival, just before Passover season would end, everyone, everyone, verse 11, all of the Jews expected, 
And even all the Christians expected that Peter was going to become Herod's next spectacle. He was next up. Here are some major reasons as to why nobody thought Peter would be released. Number one, Herod saw that the Jews were pleased. Zero chance of a pardon. Herod, we'll find out in the next passage, Herod loved to please and hear the crowds praise. Herod was not backing off when it came to Peter. Secondly, Peter is guarded by four squads. That is 16 soldiers. It worked in a rotation. In verse 16, he's chained between two of them. And there were guards at the front door who were watching. So Peter's not getting out of prison. He's not even trying for an escape. And so the church is not praying for Peter to escape or even to get released in the middle of the night. Not thinking Herod's going to wake up and, oh, just go away. Herod's sharpening his knives for the next day. Get a little more praise from the people. Peter's release at this point is the furthest thing from their minds. It does not frame, therefore, the the content of their prayers. How do we know? How do we know this isn't what they're praying for? Those who are praying don't even believe Rhoda when she says that Peter's at the gate. They'd never think that Herod would let him go. He's chained between guards, and there's more watching from the gate. They, they call Rhoda crazy. And this is not due to the fact that they lacked faith in God. That's a common misinterpretation of this passage. Nor is it due to the fact they lacked faith in the power of prayer. Their surprise is evidence that they were not praying for a miraculous escape or for any release in the middle of night as Herod slept. Wasn't going to happen. Peter's in lockdown. Even Peter himself was not expecting an escape or anticipating. He was sleeping. And in verse 9, he thinks even when it happens that the angel and everything else is is merely a vision. He doesn't even believe it. So clearly then, God does not spring Peter from jail as an answer to their prayers. They weren't praying for that. Nobody here is praying. Think about this. Nobody here is praying fervently for an angel to appear for chains to fall off, for an iron gate to swing open by itself, or for an angel to lead Peter out into the street. None would even imagine to pray for such an absurd domino of events. Who prays like that? It is the Lord God who orchestrates Peter's escape according to his own design And not man's design. 
God isn't saying, well, I see they're asking those chains to fall off. I better grant that. Oh, somebody else there was saying, well, maybe he needs to throw on his cloak now. Tell the angel, no, 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 no. They weren't even praying for this. How else can we know that they were not praying for Peter's escape, nor nor expecting Peter to be released at all? It's because James wasn't. James was martyred. They fully expected Peter to be martyred. And ultimately, they were praying. They were praying fervently, but they were praying for something else. Again, Peter's supernatural release, it was, it was not a result of the church praying powerfully for Peter's escape. They, they weren't doing it. This scenario in verses 6 through 10 wasn't even on their prayer radar. I won't hear that from Benny Hinn. Consequently, we have to stop thinking that praying fervently means praying for a miracle. They were not praying for this miracle. Therefore, God did not need their prayers in order to act in the way which he did, nor to to spring Peter from the cell in the way that he did. He didn't need them to ask him to do that. God decided to do it. Peter says in verses 11 and 17, the Lord just did it. And a church praying fervently then in verse 5 does not suggest that we constantly ask the Lord uh, confidently for miracles. If you've got faith, you'll always be asking for miracles. They weren't asking for the miracle. Also, the only thing that I find incredibly fascinating about this whole escape is that Peter was thinking the whole time it wasn't real. He thought it was a vision. Think about that for one moment. Think about that intently for one moment. The angel struck Peter hard on the side so that he would awake. Chains fell off. Peter put on his sandal and his cloak and bound and girded himself up. He he put on his outer garment. He walked past all the guards through the gate into the street before he ever determined that it was real in verse 11. (laughs) This may not have struck you yet, but Peter was no stranger to visions. He'd received a spectacular series of visions back in chapter 10 with a sheet coming down from heaven and, and the animals in it and everything. He knew how this worked. So Peter had firsthand experience with visions. He understood what they were. Apparently then, visions from God, revelatory visions from God, must be very realistic and physically stimulating experiences that very much mimic reality, or else Peter would have never confused what was happening in reality with a vision. He thought reality was a vision. 
Well, visions then apparently are not like what you see on TV. Someone dazing off and, you know, fog around the circle and seems kind of half in and half out. Revelatory visions that God gives are indistinguishable from reality. As if you're awake, as if, you, as if you're truly there. It should be no surprise to us then, uh, when later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul states that, that his revelations and his visions, they're entering heaven. He says they were experienced, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. Why doesn't Paul know whether he was in or out of the body? It's because a vision is so like a genuine physical experience and encounter. It is experienced precisely as if you are awake and as though you are there. Bend your mind around this. If this is the case... Think about the probable experience of the Apostle John while he was writing the book of Revelation. Holy smokes. When the angel told John to write down the things which you see, his vision is like reality. And when Peter finally realizes that his vision is actually a reality, and he pulls up and he knocks at Mary's gate, he gets Rhoda. Everybody inside is praying. Nobody believes Peter is there. Again, their their doubt was not a lack of confidence in prayer, nor lack of faith in Christ. Not even a loony tune would have considered praying to God for Peter's scenario that unfolded. Can you imagine a church leader asking his people to pray in that way? So then, since they were not praying for Peter's escape, uh, but fully anticipated that in the morning Peter would be executed by Herod, just as James had been, What were they praying for? What were they fervently praying for? Do me a favor. If I ever get arrested and imprisoned for violating the king's edict, that is a frighteningly plausible scenario. I won't get arrested for breaking the law, because I don't break the law. Well, I speed from time to time. That's just between us. But nothing they'll throw me in prison. So if I ever do get imprisoned for something, it will be for preaching the gospel and violating a governor's order. So do this for me as a favor. Um, as I'm in there. Don't pray for chains to fall off. 
for doors to swing open, for monkeys to fly in and rescue me. No, nor any other ridiculous, implausible scenario. Don't waste your time in prayer on that. Peter's church wasn't praying in that way. And if God wants a flock of monkeys to fly in and rescue me, He doesn't need your help. He'll just do it. On His own. He'll just do it. Please pray biblical. In that way, if I'm executed, if I die, when I see Christ face to face, Jesus won't say to me, your church, Pastor John. Well, you didn't teach them anything while they're alive. And while you're alive, did you? While you're in prison, your congregation was praying for your chains to fall off. For earthquakes so that the walls of your cell will cave in. PSLBC was praying that I would send angels to blind the guards and that you would ride away on a unicorn. Jesus would say, I mean, I mean, they were just praying ridiculous stuff. John Paul, you failed me. Why didn't you instead teach the church to pray biblical? That they would remain faithful? That you would remain faithful? Why didn't you read to them Philippians chapter 1? And teach them to recognize that your circumstances have been caused for the greater advance of the gospel. You should have taught them to pray that you would be bold with the gospel. That, that you would have opportunities to witness to the guards and everyone else in prison. Pray that the justices and, and the other authorities would be reasonable and, and fair at your trial. And most importantly, in their hearts. Because they will be listening. Have them pray that you would be bold with the gospel. To proclaim that Christ is Lord over all. Pray that ultimately, according to God's sovereign providence, that you will either be delivered and return to them, or if God so wills, you'll be delivered into heaven. Either way, you're going to be delivered. Because if you depart and be with Christ, well, for that, that's very much better. And teach your people to pray fervently, even for themselves, that they will stand firm, that they will do not, that they will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ who bought them, but trusting in the Lord because of your imprisonment and because you have refused to capitulate and compromise, that your church will have far more courage to speak the word of God without prayer, or with prayer, and without fear. Folks, providence, prayer, persecution, they're all God's instruments for the furtherance of the gospel. That Christ may be proclaimed that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, when Christ will be proclaimed, we will rejoice. Again, I say, we will rejoice. I'll finish up a few things on the close of this passage next Sunday um, to do with John Mark and a couple other things in Scripture, but that's enough today. So I think most of us want to go eat, right? Let's pray. Father, as we pray now together, as a church, as a congregation, loving you and loving one another, uh, we want to pray big. We want to pray in a way that magnifies you, that, uh, that through your Son and the Gospel, that, that, that you will be glorified in every way, and uh, that we would pray um, well, realistic, Yet expecting in every situation, you can do far more abundantly than anything that we even ask. Lord, thank you that you're in control. You never lose control. And as we're confident of this, take fear far away from us. Cause us to to be people who will win others to faith in Christ. And caused us, caused us to stand firm as individuals and as a congregation until the end, knowing that we will be delivered. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.